Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. Welcome to The Indispensables. I'm Bruce Tolgan. Today, I have Dr. Thomas Bigda Payton. Uh, I get to call him Tom. You can call him Dr. Bigda Payton. He is uh, an expert in uh, learning uh, writ large, but in particular, an expert in learning in the workplace, uh, in a working environment. Um, he was the chief learning officer for for quite a while of, of a substantial healthcare system called Catholic Health. Uh, he is now uh, the co-founder and executive director of Springboard Labs, a social venture organization founded in 2023. So uh, he's in the business now of transforming corporate learning. Uh, Tom, welcome to The Indispensables. Thank you, Bruce. Good to see you. Uh, it's great to see you. And I should, uh, I should, I guess, disclose uh, that we've worked together. Uh, and so uh, uh, we almost count as colleagues. And um, uh, in, in a past life, you were a client. Uh, and in, in, in the future, perhaps we will be collaborators. Sounds great. Um, so, uh, uh, so tell us, uh, you know, for those who don't know about corporate learning, for those who, who don't know you, shame on them, uh, tell us, how, how did you get to be you? What's your story? Well, my, uh, my work-related story is that I started my working life as a teacher and principal in private schools in Boston and St. Louis. I was a history guy, so that's what I taught. And since then, I've been a stories and narrative guy all the way through. And then I did a left turn in my early 30s when I went to the Harvard School of Ed and ended up doing a doctorate in something I didn't know existed before, which was called Organizational Behavior and Intervention which is really the study of how organizations as a whole learn or don't and what you can do about that. So I was fascinated by that <clears throat> whole idea. And so I went into what's sometimes called adult learning in the workplace, team, team learning, uh, individual learning to achieve high performance, that kind of thing. And so I've been like you, I think a researcher my whole life around examining what seems to work and who does well. Uh, one of the things that we've built our Springboard Labs on is ongoing research with learning leaders around the United States and Canada on what does high performance look like in a learning function? And, and I'll come back to that in a second. But so um, once I had done my doctorate, I hung out a shingle, said I'm a consultant now and ran three or four different consulting practices across various industries, working often. A typical example would be working with a VP of operations in a software company uh, and their team to accelerate a change process to make things better. So we would call that team action learning or other terms of that sort, high performing team kind of work. And after doing that, I got into healthcare substantially about 20 years ago. And among other things, I started a, a learning network of healthcare innovators I worked with a physician who was on the speaker's circuit. He would give a talk about transforming healthcare. And I would go in and say, well, let's do a consulting project about that. And so we made a go of that. He retired earlier than I was ready to. 
So in 2015, I networked my way into the chief learning officer job at Catholic Health and built out the function, the learning function there. Um, I was called VP of Org Development and Chief Learning Officer, which are two sides to the same coin. So today, fast forward, I'm trying to be of service to people who job, do jobs like the one I was doing. I retired from that job in December. I'm now a strategic advisor part-time on leadership and learning to Catholic Health. And in the other two-thirds of my time, I'm building Springboard Labs with some colleagues. So what we mean by learning is it's a function, it's a discipline. It's sometimes called L&D, learning and development in uh, different uh, companies. But what we mean by it can include that, but it also can include anyone who's a leader of learning for the organization. So that can be head of talent, talent strategy, chief uh, human resource officer, chief culture and people officer. There's different names. So there's various professional associations, networks that we're familiar with and that we have a colleague network with. And so that's the group that we're trying to help. Um, so there's brand new challenges post-pandemic for the learning officer or the learning person or the function. And that's what we're trying to help with right now. Well, that's all. Uh, that's a lot. And uh, so, uh, uh, so you started out uh, as, as a history teacher and principal, yeah. which is so cool. Um, uh, my wife is a historian and uh, uh, most of my family is made of teachers. So uh, I, have a, I have a big uh, soft spot in my heart for teaching and teachers and all things learning. And, uh, you know, you sort of glossed over, you networked yourself into a C-level role in a zillion-dollar organization. <laughs> so, uh, just for, for the record, how, roughly how big is Catholic Health? Catholic Health is six hospitals, 15,000 employees. It, the third largest employer on Long Island, it occupies everything east of uh, Manhattan, essentially. So uh, it's what you would call in the national scale, a regional, actually mid-sized healthcare system. We know a, a lot of people from other healthcare systems that are both Catholic and not Catholic that have a lot, that are a lot bigger than that. But essentially it's, the issues are the same. You find when you go outside Catholic health and you talk to systems that are four or five, six times our size, the core issue, the core problems are very similar. Yeah. And uh, so and that's where we had a chance to work together. Uh, thank you. And um, uh, uh, but and I've worked with a lot of healthcare organizations and I'm often in there talking about leadership and trying to help leaders and managers be more effective. Uh, and I've found that the stakes in healthcare uh, are so high and the complexities are so great. Right. That healthcare economics is is a is a puzzle at best. And uh, most healthcare organizations have been severely understaffed. And of course, they're in the business. Uh, if you're in the hospital, that means you're sick, probably. Um, and uh, so they're in the business of, you know, caring for people who need substantial healthcare interventions. The stakes are high. Um, and so for quite a while, you were in that business, and I know you'll probably still be helping leaders in healthcare and learning leaders in particular. Um, and I want to get into how you networked your way into a C-level role in a zillion-dollar company, because for most people, that's 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 they'll be curious exactly what did that look like. Um, <laughs> right. But uh, but 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 can you talk about the that high-stakes environment of healthcare and what it's been like for you? Um, to be responsible for making sure that learning goes right in those environments. Sure. Okay. So a couple couple questions in there. 
briefly on how I networked my way into this, I had run a consulting business for probably 25 years before my colleague retired and I started looking around. So as part of that journey, I worked significantly with healthcare executives and change leaders throughout the US and Canada. And we had a network that we ran a, an annual conference and webinars over a period of, oh, easily five years and plus. And uh, we called it the Innovation Expedition in Healthcare, uh, which I always love that name. And one of the folks who was in that network recommended me to the CHRO at Catholic Health when he was looking. So as, as it happened, I kind of really sort of wasn't looking, but when I started to talk to him about the job, I got interested because it seemed like there was a lot of build. I like building things. And so they had, in my mind, a very limited learning function. And I thought this is a big opportunity to build it out, which is what we did over the last few years. So in terms of the high stakes, you're absolutely right. Uh, healthcare is often under a spotlight around being perhaps the most complex industry ever. Uh, that's one, one thing that has been spoken of about it, partly because human beings are not widgets. Uh, they talk back. And so <laughs> you can't just process them <laughs> and send them out the, the end of the factory. Right, uh, right. <laughs> so, so there's a lot of dynamics that are very challenging. One of the things that we know in leadership is that that can be overwhelming and people can want to have very simple magic wand kind of solutions. So one of the things we teach in leadership is how to lead in a VUCA world, we call it volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous. That term was borrowed for the military when they were fighting Al-Qaeda and other non-state agents in the, right? Um, and so part of VUCA is being able to differentiate between problems that are simple, complicated, and complex, and knowing what to do um, in response to them. So to make that fairly, or make that a little simpler, uh, a simple problem for a department manager would be one that they can solve within their span of control. They don't, they're not interdependent with another department that there are such problems, they are actually the minority. Most of the problems a manager faces are complicated or complex. So a complicated problem involves a handshake with another department that's beyond your span of control. And a complex problem involves both horizontal and vertical alignment. You got to manage up as well as manage across to have a chance at solving that problem. So there are many examples of that. One of the ones that's burning right now in healthcare is Healthcare, the workforce was hit really hard by the pandemic. Over half the, the uh, workforce in an acute care setting, a hospital setting is nursing. So um, we had two waves of, of departures when the pandemic had hit. Anybody who was, who was in sight of retirement said, I'm out of here. And anybody who was close to retirement would often say, well, I'm not done with nursing, but I'm done with hospital. I'll go find something else I can do with my nursing license. So that left two big holes in the boat. And then you have a tough labor market and you have people scared to get into the profession. So what we have now is tremendous staffing shortages in nursing nationwide. Um, we are not exempt to that. And we also have a very thin rank of senior nurses and a flood tide of younger nurses under 30. So we have a right. lot Th of this knowledge. rising youth tide in, 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 in a lot of fields. And it's, and it's especially I think significant in healthcare because of the intense seniority uh, culture that has imbued yes. nursing yes. as a profession. Very true. 
and the and the industry has tended to be fairly hierarchical, top down, which has made sense because it's highly regulated. It's a safety conscious industry. But now they have to figure out what we call being ambidextrous as an organization. They got to use their left hand when it's a case of compliance and their right hand when they need commitment and innovation. That's actually an organization design problem. It's a management skill set problem. And those are things that are going to have to evolve fairly rapidly in healthcare now, because otherwise you're not going to have a reset of the workforce and you're going to be in even more trouble in three to five years from now. So we're working on what's called attrition uh, improving retention. Uh, we have a whole program on resilience and retention. Uh, so the workforce recovery issues are very alive and acute right now in healthcare. Yeah, I think um, what you're saying, I hear from leaders all over the country in, in healthcare. And uh, um, and it's, it's one of the things I find interesting about talking with you is that, um, yes, of course, you're an expert in uh, learning, you're an expert in workplace learning in particular, uh, leadership development in particular. But in, you know, outside of a battlefield, I'd say uh, uh, hospitals are the most volatile and uncertain environments. And particularly with the horrendous staffing shortage, everyone's overcommitted, everyone's fighting burnout. Um, and again, you can't make mistakes. Uh, so it's, it, it's tough. Um, so, but, but I think that's, a, uh, and, and I want people who are listening to you and the rest of, of what you have to say, uh, to, to think about that context that, that, you know, you, you are battle tested, let's say, um, uh, I, I, I do want to go back, uh, just for a minute to the networking your way into the C-level role in a zillion dollar company, because <laughs> what, what I heard, and I just want to confirm this is that you didn't like say, oh, I need a job. Now I'm going to go network, right? But rather, you had an elaborate network because you're a relationship guy and you had mutual relationships of uh, value adding with lots of folks. So there were plenty of people who already knew who you were, what you could do, what you've done. They knew you were valuable. And so it's not like you were beating down their door, which is how some people think about networking, but rather that you had a network of real relationships with people who really understood your ability to add value. And that's why you were able to uh, get into that kind of a role. I, I, I want to draw a bright line under that because people who are as phenomenally successful as you, um, I think to mere mortals seem like, well, how... What, 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 how did they do that? And uh, there's no shortcut. There was no moment where it happened. It's about how you've conducted yourself throughout your life and career, I think. Well, I, I think that's on track. I'm a big believer in networking and networking runs side by side with other things you talked about, certainly learning and value add, relationship, mutual, you know, that kind of thing. So you kind of trust in abundance and you say, among other things, I, I'm also a believer in innovation and you can't innovate by yourself. You can learn a lot within your organization, but you have to look outside. I've, I've had multiple experiences where you'd advance to a certain stage in an innovation project. And then for tons of reasons, mostly because organizations that are successful like to kill new things because they want to keep doing what they've been doing. And so they're set up to smother innovation after it becomes a small infant 
right? So, and, and, that, and that, again, I mean, these pearls of wisdom, I think it's really important for people to hear what you just said, uh, that it, no matter how valuable innovation is, no matter how important it is, it's threatening to right. some people. Right. That's right. So you get to a certain point when you've built a high-performing team or an innovative area or division or program, whatever, where it will start to get significant suppression in your organization. You have to go outside. That's one, one of the avenues. And you kind of have to say to the outside world, well, I may not be a prophet in my own land, but what do you guys think of this? And then you're both reality checking. Is this as good as we think it is? How does it compare to others? What can we learn from them, uh, from our peer group that can help us to improve what we've done and be, be real about continuous learning and put our ego aside and say, well, maybe... You know, we're really happy with this. Somebody might have done a better job somewhere. Let's 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 acknowledge that and seek it. Let's go find it. So really, that's what the networking is about: is trying to improve that learning opportunity all the time and create new with colleagues who want to co-create, co-develop. And it, it it requires a sort of confidence and humility at the same time. I think. Yeah, um, we like to talk about leaving your title at the door. Um, we like to, I love your title of lead from where you are in the indispensables book. Uh, we're, I'm a big believer in that. We, we do, um, a a whole program on what we call employee driven improvement, which is sort of a way to say, as opposed to our normal mindset of let's have a change project that starts from the top and trickles down, let's go direct to the front lines and work backwards. We've done some of our best work during the pandemic by doing that. The pandemic was an automatic level setter because no one what to do knew what to do. It never happened before. So there were no answers. And at first the management wanted to operate the normal way. Well, let's make a policy and procedure about PPE and who goes into the rooms and who doesn't will hand it down completely fell apart. It was dead on arrival because it was chaos. And also because it was scary and nobody really knew what was going on. So they had to then fortunately pivot to switch gears, say, wait a minute, we may have a high rank, in this organization, but we don't know what to do either. Why don't we share the problem with the staff? And then they actually did that in a number of occasions. And the staff came up with great ideas about what, what should be the guidelines or the practices. And then when they said it, it was real because it came from the front lines. So all of that is the lead from where you are approach. And I think we have certain people who can do that intuitively, but if we as leaders create the conditions for that, we have that bottom-up vector always happening. And I think we need that more and more in these these times of a lot of turbulence in the work environment. Yeah, and I, I, I think, uh, you know, sometimes I'm not sure if I am uh, feel fortunate to have lived through what is surely a generationally significant accident of history, the pandemic, um, a true transformation. I'm glad, I guess it wasn't a global depression or a world war, uh, but you know, it's a pretty big thing. And to your point, it's because, right. It, it, nobody knows what to do. It's new to everyone. It's a matter mm-hmm. of first impression. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I, I really love your description. I hear that from, from generals in the military all the time about the, when they're in an unfamiliar environment, which it turns out is always, if you're in combat, um, that it becomes critical to get information flowing up the chain of command, not just down the chain of command. Right, right. 
And I think that's a learning and organization design problem because I, I can tell you the story that healthcare workers tell themselves. They will say, and we would go in and do after action reviews, which came from the military also about, well, how did you get through the first wave of the pandemic? Um, and they had a lot to say about that. But essentially what they would say at the end of it, when we say, well, what can we learn from it? Well, we really do great under crisis. Like if someone's in, in you know, life-threatening situation in the emergency room, or there's a code blue, or there's a global pandemic, we pull together and we make it happen and we do things we couldn't do before, like work remotely and like solve our HR staffing problems in a matter of days versus weeks and months. You know, those things happened. Supply chain stuff, the barriers disappeared overnight. Then the crisis goes away and it's back to day to day. And that's when we go back to normal. That's we struggle. We don't do well. And they'll tell themselves that. So we would then say for my team, well, why not? Why can't we have day-to-day be more like what the crisis looks like? Uh, well, uh, how might we do that? That's adaptive organizi- organizing. That's learning at scale. That's learning how to work together so that we create the work environment that encourages that type of behavior more often. And I will tell you that one of the main challenges we're working on now for learning leaders is they have been placed in a position of both blessing and curse. There's learning has gone from the shadows to the spotlight in the uh, the wake of the pandemic. It was thought of certainly in healthcare and I think other industries as essentially a compliance function, just, just register people for classes and just take attendance and make sure that we meet our numbers, that type of thing. Right. And make sure when we're in, we're in highly regulated mode that people have taken their compl- annual compliance training. So when the regulator shows up, we're in good shape. That was learning pre pandemic. Now it's, hold on a second, I'm the head of HR for my organization, learning, can you help me with this emergency we have with, with our young nurses leaving? You know, we have a revolving door, we hire a lot, but then they leave within 12 weeks because they're freaked out and they can't handle it. Can you help me with what we call speed to proficiency, getting them up to par sooner? So learning has a big opportunity. The question for the learning field is, is learning ready for that? Because the window of opportunity can close. If learning can't deliver, in the next two, three, five years, HR is going to look somewhere else. The business is going to look for somewhere else. Says you guys can't help me. I'm going outside. I don't need you if you can't, you know, hit the mark for me. So that's the window of opportunity. Learning is in right now. I think. I, I, I think that's a great way to put it. And my view is that it requires some organizational change uh, in in a in a big way, right? Because um, it's really about culture. Uh, one of the things about the military that people who are not familiar with the military don't realize is uh, the military is is all about training. It's it is a training mm. culture. Mm. Train, 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 train. If you get promoted, you get trained. If you don't get promoted, you get trained. Every time you get promoted, you get trained. Every time you don't get promoted, you get trained. Train, 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 train. They train everyone all the time. And that is why they're the greatest fighting force in the history of the world. And when they're not under fire, they recognize that that is the time to prepare for when they are under fire. Mm -hmm. And that is their culture right? It's like firefighters. You know, they know they're going to go have to fight a fire. So when there's not a fire, they do fire prevention education. When there's not a fire, they prepare their equipment. When there's not a fire, they practice what they're going to do when there is a fire. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Absolutely. 
Yeah, one of the best projects I ever worked on was long ago before I got into healthcare. I worked with Fidelity Investments, and it was the bond and money market division. It was run by a guy who had commanded a destroyer in the Navy in Vietnam. So he was definitely a take no prisoners type of guy, and he was big on operations. He was a huge believer in after action review. And this is financial services now, right? But he said, as soon as I started talking to him about lessons learned, this is important to your operations. You got to connect learning with operational improvement. He said, totally what you're talking about. I know from the Navy, we called it after action review and prior action review, PAR. Uh, we're going to prepare for that meeting or that event or that battle in advance. We're going to rehearse it. And I think you and I share some thoughts about management, Bruce. I think in management, we often go in by the seat of our pants and don't have a plan. And so why well, would you be, want- Because so many managers, what they do is they think they're too busy to manage until the building's on fire. And, um, <laughs> right, and exactly. to, your, to your point, you know, uh, um, uh, the rehearsal, the scrimmaging, the, you know, if you want to be blown away by the Navy SEALs ability to go get bin Laden or whatever it is, uh, mark my words, they practiced that execution more times than anyone can count. I mean, that's not true because somebody did count, but uh, but they they create a full scale model and they practice, 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 practice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's why they're so good, because they train when they have the time to train. Training is the key to excellence. And uh, it's, 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 I, I, one of the things that excites me about your approach and your uh, new business um, is that uh, I think you're going to bring that uh, wisdom to organizations and help them realize that uh, if they commit to transforming training and making it essential, uh, then they will avoid unnecessary problems. They'll solve problems more quickly. They'll make better use of resources. They'll uh, cut rework. They'll make it more comfortable for high performers, less comfortable for low performers. Managers will be better able to delegate responsibility. And especially in a staffing shortage, they'll be able to get more work out of fewer people. So I just, you know, uh, that preparing in advance, call it whatever you want. That's training. Yeah, yeah. totally. No, I think the training-oriented organization or the training-built organization is a key piece. So is after-action review and prep and rehearsal. So we think the heart of management is conversation. And so <clears throat> we teach and we train people in some of the tools and techniques that you're familiar with. Um, we borrowed some from you. Thank you. Um, and Thank you. I'm an evangelist. I'm glad you're teaching that stuff. <laughs> uh, we do a lot of uh, debriefing using a tool that I call Plus Delta. What's working? What needs to be improved? That's Delta. And we teach them to do it on two levels. One is the work itself. And the second is teamwork, coachability, relationships with others, etc. And then from there, having built that building block, we've, we've played this into a program that we call Touchpoints for our frontline managers, which basically says, if you have frequent, friendly, forward-looking one-on-ones, You'll prevent at least half of your employee relations problems and you'll have a base to build from towards high performance. And then we do a bunch of stuff off of that for our high potential leaders, for uh, delegation and empowerment, high performing team, all that kind of thing. And then here's the interesting point. Today, we've had, we have a bunch of people who've taken these classes and they'll come to me and say, Tom, this is great stuff. I'm a director or I'm an AVP or something like that. We have no time. How are we supposed to do this when we have no time? And so I say, well, there's two things. You have to invest the minimum amount of time to sharpen the saw, to keep going, 
to prac, to, but secondly, be opportunistic. Realize it doesn't have to take a ton of time if you use the right focus and the right toolkit. So I have a couple of projects where I meet with a kind of one room schoolhouse of my learning leaders from a certain department. So this, in the case I'm thinking about now, it's an imaging radiology department from a large hospital. So they have an AVP, a director, several managers, several supervisors, et cetera. We meet all together for an hour a month for lunch and learn. And I come in and say, tell me what's going on. Tell me a real situation you're facing right now. Who's got one? And we'll go, we'll go around the circle out of nine people. And maybe I got three hot items, often port performance management or coaching or developing somebody or, you know, managing up and all that stuff can come up right in the moment. And I'll say, okay, let's work it. Let's review that. And let's rehearse your next conversation that you're going to have and get input from the group, not just me, but from the group. And I'll usually pull a tool or two out of the kit bag uh, to share with them or, you know, our practice. But I say to them now, go out and use what we just did in the next 30 days when you have a moment with your team. When you're at side by side with that person that you want to work with in terms of the next client or the next image that they have to take, take two minutes to, to touch base with them in terms of tell me your work priority, what are you working on, what's working well, what can be better, and talk to me how you're solving that problem. That just takes two minutes. It's not a one-on-one for half an hour or an hour in my office. So we're, we're talking, we're calling that coaching in the moment. By the way, I think reinventing uh, what people think about when they think of one-on-ones, it should not be going to the principal's office. uh, 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 Forgive the uh, reference since you were Mm -hmm. a principal in the past. (laughs) I I bet going to the principal's office when you were a principal was just fine. But it it shouldn't be getting called into the principal's office. It should be. And one of the things I tell leaders is, look, you know, you have to look at your actual cadence of work and interface with other people. And it's just a matter of, hmm, if you're already touching base, slow down, uh, take notes, uh, make the conversation a little deeper and a little more uh, forward looking um, and, you know, get into a little bit more detail. Help the person think through the work out loud with you. And, um, and, it, and, and okay, two minutes, it could be five minutes, it could be six minutes. It doesn't have to be uh, going to a neutral location or the principal's office and having an extended conversation. And I think sometimes when people resist the idea of one-on-ones, it's because they can't get their mind around that. Well, we work side by side all the time. We're talking all the time. Yes, slow down and get better at those conversations. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so, so I like what you're saying. And two things I wanted to uh, uh, draw a bright line under. One is uh, you said that if you do this, your touch points program, which by the way, was phenomenally successful at Catholic health, I believe. And, uh, and, and is that right? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Had great outcomes. And my view is that it doesn't just diminish employee relations problems, but it also right. diminishes real problems in execution of the work. Mm-hmm. Problems mm-hmm. At, in healthcare uh, cost well-being, sometimes, God forbid, cost lives. Um, and, and certainly cost a bunch of money and time that people do not have to waste. Uh, and, and so I think it's really important. It's not just a gift to HR. We're going to uh, eliminate uh, employee relations problems. It's not just a gift to managers. You're not going to have to deal with HR so much. It's a gift to the whole organization, to the patients on the receiving end, and to, to every single person at every level, because the biggest gift you can give people is helping them avoid unnecessary problems. 
problems. Absolutely. Well, I, I so endorse what you just said, uh, that all of this is pointing towards learning and skill building. And in this case, in, in the case of managing every day, contributing directly to operational improvement, operational outcomes. So one of the things we talk about as a learning leader challenge around the country is persuading the business that you are a value-added function. So we talk about that in terms of return on impact, not just return on investment, which is dollars and cents, but return on impact. How do you know that your work is making a difference? And some of that is, is sharing the story, the observations, are the stories moving in the right direction? And so, you know, for example, what difference is it making to the business that we're helping people get better at these conversations? Um, and so in, in the case that I'm working on right now, we rolled out a training on resilience for our new nurses because we don't want them to burn out. We don't want them leaving. There's certain techniques you can do to better care for yourself at work and at home. That's resilience. But we know that's not enough. It has to be reinforced by the managers, by the ecosystem around the nurse. So the new nurse has what they call a preceptor. That's somebody that trains the new nurse. There's right. an educator. There's a manager on the unit. All of those pe people have to be part of a team that actually uh, supports and challenges that new nurse to be the best she can be and helps her to think about how she's being lifted up by her team around her. And that is going to be likely to keep her staying with the organization rather than leaving. So we've got some things going on right now where we are testing that very model beyond the training into essentially a learning environment for that unit. And then does that reduce our attrition? The logic says it's bound to, but, you know. Oh, it will. And, and, yeah. and look, you know, especially when it comes to young nurses in this extremely hierarchical seniority based uh, uh, profession that has been nursing, um, you know, there's a lot of hazing. Uh, uh, that is informal hazing uh, among nurses. There's a lot of, hey, nobody held my hand. There's a lot of, oh, if you can't take this, then you're not going to be able to do this job. Um, if that's hard for you, then just wait till you run into a real problem. All of this stuff that chases uh, new, less experienced nurses away uh, and uh, diminishes their experience and their well-being, um, uh, has them looking for uh, other other jobs, which they can get right across the street or or down the street or that's the issue. You know, or in the next town. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think what you're doing is really important. I mean, my view is that you have the ability because of who you are, because of your experience, because you're battle tested, because you are really committed. Maybe you can start kicking the door off the hinges in some of these organizations of helping them realize, um, I don't think we should be at the C-level table begging for resources and making a plaintiff case right, that right. Uh, this is central to the business. I want to scold CEOs and COOs and CFOs and tell them, uh, you know, you've heard of the expression penny wise, pound foolish, right? Um, you know, let, let, we can use any metaphor you want. Uh, but if you do not recognize the business criticality of training, uh, then no wonder you, you keep saying there's nothing we can do. What can we do? It's healthcare economics. It's the labor market. It's uh, there's all these things that are out of our control. Right. There's something in your control that will be transformational. Right. And absolutely. That's, that's learning. There is a transformational aspect to learning that um, if you play it out in phases, gets very concrete and very real. When we're talking to learning leaders, we say there's basically three steps to being a high-performing learning function. 
One is run learning as a business. Make sure you're aligned with the strategy, with the KPIs, with return on impact, which you should introduce so that there's a perception that this is measurable and it does make a difference. But that's only step one. Step two is you have to run learning as a product development shop. You have to frame what you have as programs with names to them that address certain issues or problems so that it's tangible for the business. It's not just ethereal. So, but running, but that takes a certain new product development mindset that a lot of learning people don't have because they grew up in HR and they have a certain specialty language. They don't really understand how you create things that are basically a, a set of programs that are easily accessible by the business. And then the third is running learning as R&D. You do ongoing research, Bruce, so do I. And we think that that's a really key piece for learning teams that often they don't really get on top of. They might get on top of, I'll research the latest learning technology, but, but researching what do high-performing leaders do in this organization? What do high-performing teams do here in Catholic Health? How do we spread that around? That is a skill set that needs a lot of development in the learning Yeah, and, and, and what is the ROI differential? I know you want to get beyond ROI, but my view is, okay, let's look. Let's look at the costs in an organization. Let, let's mm-hmm. do a test. Let us show you mm-hmm. that if you teach these people to change their behavior, they will have better outcomes and they will, uh, that, 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 uh, it's not a matter of, I always tell people, I mean, I'm expensive. I'm proud of being expensive. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm uh, for somebody who's not famous, I am, you know, scandalously expensive. And, um, and I always tell folks, you know, and guess what? That's because you are going to, uh, get a tenfold return on what you invest mm-hmm, in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and, um, so, you know, I think you have to, you, I believe that in, in my core about what you are doing. And I think you, the research I would like to see is go back and show the outcome data and that, you know, you can make this business case. Mm-hmm. Anyone who's in a, a CFO or a CEO or a COO, they probably went to business school they know the case study method. Show them. Show mm-hmm. them the case study. Right, right. right. And, um, uh, and, and uh, so, you know, I'm excited about what you're doing at, at Springboard Labs and what you have in mind. And I want, I, I, I want to turn to that. I want you to be able to explain to people what you're about or what you're doing and what you're planning to do. Uh, I do want to uh, get your insight on a, a, a concept that you raise, and I'm guessing you have some real insight on it. You, 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 and you said it in passing uh, that uh, uh, you use the, the 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 term coachability, mm-hmm. and um, and 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 I what I love about it is it's very focused on the learner, on the the person on the receiving end of yeah. leadership, management, uh, training. Um, can you say something about coachability, about its importance, about uh, you know how to how to sell it, how to find it, how to build it? Yeah. Well, we do a lot of work with our managers on this very point uh, because many of them are very good technically. They were brought up as a radiologist or a surgical surgical tech or a nurse, and then they were good at their job and they were promoted. And they have a language about what it is to be a good nurse technically, but they don't have a language for talking about behavior. They were never trained in that. So it kind of throws them off their horse when somebody is a good nurse, but they make everyone miserable around them. So then they do the best they can to talk to these people. And sometimes it works and sometimes they get their head handed to them. And depending on the culture and HR and all, they may get backing, but sometimes they don't. And so essentially, obviously, we teach them to bring their better self to work. 
you, you're a human too. If you're really mad or upset, don't try to engage at that moment. Say, say to the person, I need to talk to you, but can we sleep on it and talk tomorrow morning? You know, all that kind of stuff. But we don't tell staff that. We don't do staff training about how they should bring their better self to work. And so, <clears throat> so when so we talk think, to the- Do you think we should? Yes, I do. I absolutely, I absolutely do. I, yeah, think- I, do, I do too. I think that's so important. I mean, imagine being a, a, a Marine- a fire team leader, if the Marines you were trying to lead had not attended boot camp. Yeah, exactly. 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 But so when we're talking just to the manager, we say that behavior is part of the job. This is another place where even before the pandemic, these are highly skilled positions and they're hard to find often. So we would, I can remember some of the conversation when I first came to the organization and you could tell as we started to challenge, well, how can you tolerate having someone who makes people miserable every day for years, even if they're a good if they're a good nurse? Well, it's really hard to find good nurses out in this part of Long Island. <laughs> I would say, let's talk about what are you willing to accept and what effect, what spinoff effect does that have on the whole unit, et cetera, et cetera. You're gonna have to determine at what point you're willing to bite the bullet and say, we mean it, that behavior matters. We're not gonna look the other way. And yeah, so, by the way, that, that, that kind of toxicity of behavior is similar to uh, having people working in an environment where there are actual toxins in the air. So if you're poisoning the environment, right, if you're right. ingesting poison, how many people do you need for an effective team? The answer right. is it doesn't matter. The team right. is not going to be effective because they're ingesting poison. Yeah. So we've developed over several years a whole performance management methodology and system um, just to touch on one part of it, we developed a matrix of um, attributes for good performance that we implemented system-wide. Every hospital used to have its own uh, method, and some of them were 13 pages long, and do you wear ID badge to work? We boiled it down to five things, actually six attributes, and one of them is called teamwork, another is called reliability. We put the soft skills in descriptions, descriptors, you know. And we did that on purpose to say behavior matters and here's a way that you can score it. So under teamwork is ability to cooperate, ability to receive feedback, ability to listen and learn. And some people are very volatile. They don't want to hear it. They want to be defensive. We can't be captive to that. So we count that as part of good citizenship, good behavior by a staff member. And that's been a real learning curve for the organization and to help them Helping them give feedback about that is definitely an acquired skill. Even with a lot of our training, they can actually give feedback on, you know, Johnny, the radiology tech, makes other people in the unit miserable. They can, with help from us, they can describe that. But what they don't do unless we actively ask them to do is say, could you also comment on how he reacts when you tell him these things? In other words, it's on you as the manager to be skillful. We have to be skillful at giving and receiving feedback but if you do your part and he still goes off on you, that is an issue of its own. That's a second level issue. So that's that's really what we mean by coachability. Um, that's powerful. And um, uh, the, the question I guess I have is, um, how do you then reach those people? One of the things I've found is if you tell somebody you got a bad attitude, like that's not going to make that person's attitude any better. That's correct. If you tell somebody you're making everybody miserable, that's not going to make them any less miserable, right, in their behavior. Um, and I think the trick is to find way, and I think people are much more receptive and maybe coachable, um, if you say to them, hey, here's how we expect you to behave. 
Yes. And here's the differential in your behavior as, as compared to how we expect you to behave. So we expect you to smile and say, good morning, Mm -hmm. but you growl at people. And so you see, we need to bridge that gap between your morning growl and a smile and good morning. Right. Here, we made you a checklist. You just smile and say, good morning, try it. Right. Right. And, and of course you have to be careful and not uh, sound glib the way I just did. But, um, but if you focus on the positive, does that help people be more coachable? In part, you're on the right track with what you were just talking about. Essentially, so, so let me just take a step back. What our managers were accustomed to doing is they had a very traditional, I, in my mind, old school version of discipline that is still alive called progressive discipline, which is verbal warning, written warning, um, and then you know, possibly suspension and final written warning, and then you're out. That's the theory of it. And this is all boiled down to the colloquial, I'm writing you up. <laughs> so I write you up for an incident and I put it in your file. If, if, if you're even doing that, if you're even documenting and then there's another event and then there's another event and there's another event. And when we would go in and we say, wait a minute, what is the pattern? Your job as a manager is to be able to describe patterns because when you get into that room and you're saying to this person, you're defensive. When I talk to you, you're insulting to the other people. Uh, first of all, I'll say, what are you talking about? You know, I have no idea what you even mean. And second of all, well, the other day when you were with Sally and you're supposed to be on the same shift and she came in late, you went after her in the, you know, in the locker room. Well, that, well, she was off base. What do you expect me to do? That's just one time. You're, you're just, you're unfairly spotlighting that. So when you get into that conversation, it, it just doesn't go anywhere. It's like, well, that, there's always a thousand excuses about that event, but wait a minute, time out. We're not talking about one event. <laughs> This has happened four times over the last three weeks. So we teach them to do what we call a behavioral performance improvement plan. Now, that's different than what they knew as a performance improvement plan. It was all technical. You're, you're, you're not drawing blood right. But this is a behavioral performance improvement plan. So we tell them, and we, we really have to walk them through it. We need you to cluster their, their objectionable behaviors in no more than three. So maybe it's communication, teamwork, whatever that is. And we have this two-page document we're going to work with you on that we're also going to present to the person with authority there, us and you as their manager. Whoever their boss is has to be there. HR has to be in the know. We have to be. Because this is like all the people in your life that matter to you agree in this, this assessment. You got 90 days to change. And here's the changes we need you to make. You have three behaviors. And here's what we see. Examples, to your point, Bruce. Here's examples of behavior we see that we don't like. Here's what it would look like that we do want to see. Now, the kicker in this is we're investing in you. This whole process is because we believe you can do it. And so we're going to offer you a coach. The coach might be your manager. It might be somebody from my team. They're going to meet with you every other week. And they're going to talk about these three areas and say, what's happened lately that got you hot under the collar with Sally, who you were used to be insulting? Are you starting to do the things we told you you need to do? Talk to me about that. What are you going to do the next time? And that person, that coach is going to meet you with you for an hour. We call it performance coaching, Bruce. It's what you teach. And yeah. And, 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 and I think that we believe in you. We're here to help you. This is something you may not be aware of. It's okay. People have right. blind spots. Everybody has blind spots. Good news. We're going to help you uh, improve in an area that you don't realize is holding you back. And we're going to help you get good at something that is going to help you get ahead. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
That's the whole point. And in fact, the part of the pre-work is to work with the manager, whoever is the team that is concerned about this person. Do you think they can make it? Is it worth an investment? Should I allocate my time, my team's scarce resource to this person? Do you really believe in your heart that with your efforts and ours, there's a chance? And I will tell you, that process itself helps them clarify a lot as far as what do they really expect of this person? And what are they willing to invest in not just our team, but them supporting that person? And then they have to be willing to make a change with advice from us if the person really doesn't fulfill the mission, if they're not able to make it. So all of that's part of the process. Yeah, it's uh, uh, and, and and so you're you you've been doing this stuff for decades and uh, roughly and, um, <laughs> and and now at Springboard Labs, uh, can you just kind of give a executive summary of what is what are you guys going out there and doing? You're doing this. Yeah. Well, we're often working with healthcare leaders like me. We're working with private sector. We have a large insurance company. We have actually a client in the military. Um, and these are normally people that are in charge of learning for a very large, can be anywhere 60, 80, 100,000 person type of organization. So they'll have a team under them. And their job is everything that comes under that. It could be learning and development, career development, talent management, uh, learning management system, all the above. And usually they're on what we call a learning journey. So the leader themselves has built a record of accomplishment. They've been brought in to make learning better, make it more strategic, help uh, the organization accomplish something they want to accomplish. And essentially, the leader has to kind of get a sense of what their strengths and assets are, where they're going. So we help them with that. We help them with sizing up. What are the, where are they coming from? Where are they going? That's what we would call their own learning journey. And then there's them and their team. What's their learning strategy? So we often do visiting and planning sessions, workshops, where we talk about current situation of the learning team. Often the learning team starts as a cost center, a, a necessity, an overhead tax. That's the perception of the people who are the customers or clients. And then there's a disconnect because the learning leaders say, oh, we're worth a lot more than that, but they just don't get it. Well, then how do you get to a future where the business does recognize what you're doing? They get it. They see the value. They're not taking you for granted. So there has to be some sort of learning strategy that often involves how you engage with your upline management, how you engage with their perception of return on investment. Uh, that can vary because learning learning's interesting. It's usually inside of HR, not always. Some companies have it elsewhere, but learning's kind of like Switzerland, Bruce. It can cross over boundaries. You know, <laughs> you know I, can, I can show up in my healthcare system in our silos, our turf, and say, hey, I don't have an ax to grind here. I'm not trying to defeat you. I'm for learning. That's what I stand for. I want everybody to learn and do better. Oh, well, maybe we'll let you stay. <laughs> and then if you earn that reputation as a trusted advisor, um, you can actually begin to have that seat at the table where, you know, the, the CEO doesn't see you as another combatant. Hey, they see you as a helper that can help them build their coalition and help them be successful. So there's a whole strategy around here, which I call strategic facilitation. Sometimes people think we think that's the skill set the learning leader needs. The facilitation is sometimes thought about as a person with a flip chart and a pad and just be quiet. But this is different. This is, you might have a flip chart and a pad, but honestly, you're meeting with the C-level person that you're working with before the meeting. You're helping to navigate through that meeting. You're debriefing with them after it. You're talking about what did we learn? What is that telling you? 
How do you build your coalition, your strategy? Someone who can help with that indispensability that you talk about in chapter three of the book. So, so we do that. We do a, we do a variety of workshops um, in helping uh, build the skill set for the learning team. Um, and we help them with um, how you uh, support all that with the right technology. Learning leaders are often t- delegated the task of making big purchasing decisions on technology programs learning management system. There's a whole ecosystem of uh, technologies that are supposed to support uh, talent management, career development. So usually the poor learning leader has had no experience of this before they get into the job. So it's a pretty steep learning curve. So we aim to be, because we have a knowledge base on that too. So kind of aligning people with process, with technology, that's one of our advisement areas. And then we do a lot with uh, transition and change, change leadership, change management. So, so that's uh, that, that, that's a lot. And 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 so um, uh, organizations should bring you in if they want to make their learning function more aligned, more strategic, uh, have a a, a a a better seat at at the table uh, with clear uh, intention for um, having a positive impact on the business. That's what you can help them with. We can help with strategic learning. We can also help the HR function with, hey, listen, that's all. That all sounds great, but I got pressing bread and butter workforce issues right now. Can learn how can learning help me with that? Well, that's exactly what I'm doing at Catholic Health. Catholic Health is okay. less interested in all that other conversation. It's like, wait a minute, we're bleeding. We we've got nurses leaving that we want to keep. Can you help us with that? And learning has to be able to say yes and step up to that. Right. We can, we, uh, we, you can see an acute problem and, and provide a learning solution to it. Exactly. That's right. Um, uh, and as strategic problems, acute problems, and often uh, uh, one is just upstream and one is downstream. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Well, as our time is growing uh, short, uh, let me, uh, let me say, so, so here you are, um, uh, if I may say, uh, when you were in education, they made you the principal. Uh, when you started your first uh, consulting practices, you um, you were very very successful so much that uh, you were in great demand for a C level role uh, in a in a zillion dollar company, uh, and now on the other side of that role, you are again uh, an entrepreneur, but really going out as an advisor to business leaders. Um, I mean that's a heck of a career path, and so for those who are listening and thinking. How do I get to be like that guy? Uh, <laughs> if you were in an elevator with with someone who says, "How do I get to be like you?" What's your sort of quick sketch career advice? What's your, you know, if if you do nothing else, do this. That's a tough one because some of the things that I grew up with uh, are not offered anymore. Like with the program at Harvard doesn't exist now. We actually tr- want to change that at Springboard. We want to offer, uh, you know, certification programs doctoral level stuff that doesn't require three years out of your life and how to do organizational transition and transformation. So that's TBD. I'll keep you informed. But for the meantime, the shape that it takes now, how it's, how, what I do is known is usually as industrial organizational psychology, IO psych, they call it. Um, There are programs in that. Um, It's hard to get to organizational learning. Most learning uh, efforts are more HR individual oriented. So one way to get into something resembling it is HR strategy, which usually takes the form of talent. Um, if you want to become the head of talent, that would be good. 
The other thing is, I have a couple of close colleagues who, who run learning or did recently who actually grew up in operations in their business. One was in uh, pharmaceuticals. The other was in, in insurance. They actually grew up through the business and ran a, a, a P&L function. And then the head of the business, the CEO, said, you've been so successful running the operation. Could you please take over talent and learning? Because it'll be more practical that way. So that's a whole different avenue that I think is... We find that some of the folks who are best equipped to hear what we have to say have some sort of uh, background in operations. A friend of mine who runs learning for the Alberta system uh, in, in Canada, very large healthcare system, he had a first career in banking, international banking. And the guy who was running that said, could you help us with our talent strategy? And then, he, then when he was looking for his next job, he said, well, let me look around and see if I can find something where I, he was international. Can I go back to Canada? Well, it was healthcare. So he'd never been in healthcare before, but he'd been in learning and banking. Yeah. So coming through that channel is very promising if you have that opportunity. Dr. Thomas Bigda Payton, thank you for being a guest on The Indispensables. Well, you're very welcome, Bruce. It's always a pleasure to talk with you, and I look forward to continuing to collaborate with you. Likewise. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. Learn more about GoToism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.